Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Kyle Mitchell, who made his journey from professional golf to multifamily real estate investing. So I'm really excited to let him share his story today. So Kyle, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Marcus. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So a little bit about Kyle. He played professional golf for a few years around California before working full-time for American Golf, where he was a regional manager. He has been investing in income-producing real estate since 2013, and his company currently manages approximately $17 million in multifamily assets in the Arizona markets. He is the managing partner and co-founder of Limitless Estates, LLC, where the vision is to provide A-class living to lower-income housing by putting residents first and instilling a sense of community while inspiring others to do the same. Kyle's goal is to add massive value to others while helping build generational wealth through multifamily real estate investing. So yeah, that's a little bit of an intro there for you, Kyle, but I'm going to let you kind of dig into that a little bit more, share uh, with the audience today a little bit more about yourself and what your current focus is. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, like you mentioned, I've been investing in real estate since 2013. I started like many in the single family home space, and I was really just trying to create some passive income for myself while I had a full-time job um, as a regional manager for a golf management company. So um, a couple years later, I found it very difficult to scale with single family homes. At that time, I wanted to leave my company because they were shrinking and I wanted to be growing. And so I was looking for some alternative career paths to take. And since I had been investing in real estate for a few years at that point, I started looking into uh, real estate careers and I found multifamily syndication, which is what I do now. And I fell in love with it. It's uh, very similar to what I was doing back as a regional manager for a golf management company, you know, building systems, hiring people, managing people. Um, building budgets, managing a budget. A lot of that is what you do once you take over a property, which is what a lot of people don't talk about. But really, it's running a business. And that's what I did for 15 years. So I fell in love with it. 11 months later, I left my job to start uh, our company, Limitless Estates. Um, And we've been owning that company now for about two and a half years and acquire multifamily in the Arizona markets. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Um, So Initially, you said you started in single family. What what made you make that jump to real estate in, in general? Like, um, what was it that made you to go, hey, I'm going to start investing on the side and and looking to build a real estate portfolio? Yeah. So when I was 16, I invested. Uh, it was about two thousand dollars, and at 16, that was a lot of money to me. And uh, I invested it on a stock tip from a person who worked at the local golf course with me, or um, one of the regulars there, actually. And I lost that money in about a month and a half. And I was like, what the heck is going on? I had zero control. And I actually didn't invest any money for about eight years after that until after that. And I was putting a little money away in my uh, 401k. My employer didn't match. And I was just sitting there like, this is, I'm going to work until I'm 100 if this is, if this is the case. So, you know, just doing research, listening some, to some podcasts, reading some articles, talking to people, seemed like real estate was the right way to go. It just clicked in my head. Um, and so at that time I had a single family or I had my own primary residence. I sold my primary residence, took all the equity out of that and started buying real estate. 
And that's kind of how I got the bug and got into it. And uh, it just makes sense to me. You're buying something, you know, tangible that you can feel and um, you have a lot more control over it. No, that's great. And it sounds like you just took some massive action, you know, everything from, you know, getting educated on the space, uh, taking that first leap into to making your first investment and then, you know, quitty, pretty uh, quick after you're already um, you know, going full time and leaving your job. And, and people talk about that sometimes of when is the right time to leave your job? You know, should you leave your job and all those different items? But um, sounds like you went in, went in uh, full bore on that uh, multifamily investing. So uh, was it uh, something you were nervous about or was it risky on your part? Like, how did you make that assessment of, of it was a good time to make that jump? Yeah, I definitely wouldn't suggest uh, doing it the way I did it because I actually quit my job before we even had a multifamily property under contract, our first one. And so I was going all in. But, you know, on the other side of that, I had been planning for about two or three years to leave my full time job. I had been looking for other alternatives. So during those that time, I had been saving up cash, right? And so I knew I needed a little nest egg to get me through a few years while we built up our business. And then my wife is very supportive of what I do and what we wanted to do. And so she still has a full-time job so she can support us there. But yeah, it was a huge leap and it was very scary when we first started out. But I think the biggest thing is to have a plan um, and make sure you're in alignment with whomever is in your life, whether that's your direct family, your significant other, your wife, whomever it may be, and just be committed and, and go for it and be consistent and, and, and you know, follow your, your plan. So we're, we've been doing that and it's been working out great. And uh, I'm glad that I did it. And looking back, I wish I would have done it sooner. Awesome. So I really want to dig into uh, your first deal today. But uh, first of all, before we get into that, I want you to tell a little bit about the, the markets that you're currently investing in. And, and what do you like about these markets? Yeah, so we invest in the Tucson and Phoenix, Arizona markets. I live in Southern California. And one of the things we love about the market is the proximity to us. I'm out there two or three times a month. And um, the reason why we're limited to two markets is we're really focused on understanding that market specifically and visiting that market as often as we can and building relationships. And I think that's hard to do when you have five, six, seven markets. And, you know, to me, reading a report, you can get a lot of information on the reports of a market, but really you cannot, those, those reports lag and you cannot really get the pulse of a market unless you're out there. And so we're out there, we host a meetup out there that I fly out to every month to host it. We're building relationships and we're out there seeing um, feeling and touching what that city is doing. So the things that we like it from an economic standpoint, uh, all the factors kind of hit the mark. You know, rent rent growth is number one in the nation for both Tucson and Phoenix um, for their respectable um, classes. Uh, in net migration, uh, population growth, job diversity, which is one of the hugest things that I look at. Back in 2008, these two markets were not very well positioned in that sense, and uh, one of the reasons why they crashed the hardest. And since then, they've done a really nice job of diversifying their jobs. Uh, they used to be very heavily reliant on construction jobs, and that's not the case anymore. So that, um, along with cost of living and you know taxes and landlord friendly, all those things are reasons why we love the Arizona market. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, I uh, I think on our last call when we were chatting, I would ask you that same question about you know how Phoenix might be uh, better well positioned to. Uh, uh, get through some of the tougher market cycles where you typically see Phoenix in, in the past where, especially in 2008, you just saw it, you know, crash hard. And it's, 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 you know, it could, could be called a swing market where it's high in the highs and low in the lows. But um, as you've kind of described here, there's a lot of those market fundamentals in place 
from job growth, population growth, and all those diversity in jobs and a lot of things that that create a strong market to invest in. It's just creating a lot more of an attractive investment and can can uh, push through even times of an economic downturn. So really, really uh, like what you're doing down there. Um, so are you finding it more competitive in the space in, in Phoenix specifically? Because there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of money uh, chasing after deals and that's kind of pushing pushing values up and compressing cap rates. Could you speak on how you're um, able to still find deals in that market? Yeah, it's definitely competitive, but I would say that it's competitive in any market right now that is a solid market. Um, but yeah, you have 1031 money that you've got to compete with. You've got institutional money coming in and their capital is a little bit cheaper than ours. And so, you know, it's about building relationships. That's how we've gotten our two deals so far is broker relationships, but being front of mind, you know, we're always constantly calling them, asking if they have any deals every time we're out in the market, try and buy them lunch or dinner or a drink. Um, but it's all about relationships. That's, that's the difference. Um, from you know separating yourself from your other competition because the competition is fierce right now cap rates are compressing and the only way to get a true real good deal is by broker relationships in my opinion no that's awesome and could you tell me i really want to dig into this first deal that you did could you tell me about the first deal that you completed yeah sure so that was about we closed on that about a year and a half after we started our company so it wasn't something that happened right away. It took a long time to kind of build up and, you know, build the relationships, build our investor database, build our knowledge and education on the space, uh, picking markets, things like that. But uh, the way we got it was my wife and I used to drive to Tucson while we had our full-time jobs at two in the morning. We'd leave on a weekday and drive out there for eight hours. And, uh, you know, a couple of days before I'd call brokers and let them know we would be coming out there to tour properties with our property management company that we had selected. And so every time we went out there, we'd have five, six to eight tours and meetings that we would set up. And then we'd drive home at, at night and get home 1 a.m. the next morning. So uh, on one of those drives, one of the brokers called me and said, hey, Kyle, we've got a deal. Uh, I literally just got the keys. I've not seen any of the units. I'm actually going to tour it for the first time other than driving by it. Uh, is this uh, something you'd be interested in? And I said, heck, yes. And we were there. Our property management got to tour it. I got to walk about five or six units and uh, it was a 42 unit property. And I think, you know, for that size property, it was, it was our a good size property for our first property to get. And uh, since we were with our property management company, we decided to tour comps as well the same day. So we got a lot of uh, the high level due diligence done by being their first person, by being the first person to see the property. Awesome. So uh, what was the, the business plan on this, this first uh, acquisition? Was it uh, a value add? Was it a deep value add? Or what, what was some of the renovations or items that you looked to implement to improve the operations on this building? Yeah, we always look for value add, whether that be on the, you know, improve, uh, deferred maintenance side, um, improving the interiors, raising rents, or just managing the property better so it can be more efficient and, and grow the bottom line. But on this one, it was an owner who bought it in 2008. We actually purchased it for less than they bought it in 2008. Out-of-state owner did not put much money back into the property and was not very good managing the manager. So they did not have a very good management company. In fact, the management company they had was a single family home provider and they just don't know how to manage multifamily. You know, one of the first things that we noticed was I called the, the number on the sign uh, that was out in front and it was disconnected. So really there was no way to market the property either unless you called that property management company directly and they told you about the property because it didn't have a website or anything. So I'm not even sure how they were leasing up some of the units. Um, 
and it just was neglected, right? So what we did was we put a <clears throat> full coat of paint on it. We had to redo the railings out there to make it safer for the residents. And then the biggest thing we did was this was an old motel, so they had sliding glass doors. So security was a big issue. Um, and we pulled those sliding glass doors in and put solid wood doors. And it really changed the look, feel, and safety of the property. And those are the major things we did. We're spending probably three or four grand a unit on the interiors, very light rehabs on the interiors, um, and then fixed the deferred maintenance and really hired a, a professional property management company to go in and show the, show the residents that we care about the property and the property's done very well. Awesome. So what type of uh, interior renovations, when you say three to four grand a unit, like what, what type of changes are you looking to implement within the units themselves? Yeah, standard stuff would be uh, resurfacing the countertops, um, painting the cabinets, adding the, the poles and the, um, the fixtures to the cabinets, new lighting uh, and flooring. So very simple stuff. Um, and then depending on the age of the appliances, we'll go in and switch those out. Um, so very simple, but one thing that we did do after we purchased the property is we were getting uh, premiums on the rents higher than we had imagined we actually called the broker back out and say, hey, how, what's the best way we can position this thing for sale? So I always encourage people to work with a broker who sold you the property so that you build that relationship. And uh, so they came out, they took a look and they, they kind of bounced some ideas off of us and we decided to implement a premium unit. And so we did five of these premium units to see if we can get the rents that we wanted. We did, on those we're doing a glass black backsplash, uh, higher end lighting, stainless steel appliances. So it's about a thousand bucks more than that. We're getting anywhere from 40 to 80 bucks in rent bumps. So it's a great ROI. And uh, so because of that, we've really been able to position it for a sale much sooner than we wanted. So it's actually listed right now. We knock on wood, we still got a long way to go with it. But um, by working with a broker and talking about our business plan, we adjusted it um, based on where the market was and, and what the demand was. And uh, now we're able to sell it a little bit earlier, hopefully. Right, and um, I think you already mentioned this, but uh, when you actually bought it, I can't remember the, the, the actual year, but uh, how, how long would you say the whole, the whole period has been so far on this property before you're looking to dispose of it? Yeah, it's only been 10 months. So, you know, our goal is to sell it in 12 months and one day. The initial business plan was six, six years. And, you know, I get asked, why, why sell it now? Why sell it so, earlier, so early? But when market uh, cap rates have compressed over the last 12 months and the rents have increased more than we wanted, it's one of those perfect scenarios. We're listing it for more than what we projected to list it in six years. So when you have that type of scenario, we can now move our investors' money into another deal and get velocity of their capital to where now we're in a position to possibly triple their funds in that time, same time frame versus double. Right, and, and when, when you're talking about cap rate compression, what, uh, what are you seeing in the market that's kind of, over the last 12 months, it sounds like there's been some changes even compressing even further, you know, what is uh, some cap rate compression that you've been seeing in the market? Let's use an example on your building. Like what, what did you buy it at and what are you expecting to sell it at? What type of cap rate? Yeah. So I would say the typical market cap right now, or when we bought was a five and a half cap. Now the market's compressed to even a five cap and you're seeing sales in the fours, which is, you know, pretty low for Tucson. Our exit cap was 6.75. And, and typically we expect the market to, market cap to increase anywhere from 10 basis points to 25 basis points, depending on the type of asset it is in the area in the market. And so when we're expecting the cap rates to increase and the cap rates actually decrease and compress, it just, it, there's a compounding effect on the value of the property, uh, which is why we're now positioned to sale.
Right. And uh, how are you stress testing your deals? Um, are you projecting for that? It sounds like you're saying your exit cap is going to be higher than when you when then when you bought it at. Um, could you kind of talk about some of the what your standard like on a deal, what you might underwrite in your deals, like how how much of a exit cap uh, increase would you be looking at on on standard deal? Like what what types of items are you looking at to make sure that you can even weather a storm, even even in some uh, some uh, sort of a downturn of sorts? Yeah, for sure. So I would say that a lot of people take a look at the purchase cap rate uh, that they buy a property at. And I think that you should definitely be aware of that number, but it's more the market cap rate, right? Because if you get a good deal and the, let's just say the market cap rates a five and a half and you buy it at six, then in that case, you're actually discounting that you bought it at a, at a discount. But if you purchase it and you overpay for it, for example, and buy it at a five cap and the market caps a five and a half, then I think you need to be more conservative on your exit cap. So I always go off of what the market cap rate is, not the purchase cap rate. Where I look at purchase cap rate is how much value can I get off the property? What cap rate can I get it to? Um, but typically, you know, depending on the market, you know, Phoenix and Tucson are completely different markets. Phoenix grows at a faster pace and also crashes at a faster pace than uh, a Tucson would. So you've got to look at that too. I don't think there's one standard for every market. And depending on where we are in the market cycle, will be more aggressive or less aggressive with the exit cap rate, but we will always have an exit cap rate greater than the current market cap rate. So I would say we would increase it anywhere from 10 basis points a year on hold to um, 25 basis points. So it could be, you know, if you buy at a five and, or if the market caps a five and a half cap and it's a strong market, we may go to a six cap on an exit. Um, or there may be a situation where we actually go all the way up to a seven cap. So it really, it depends case by case and where, where we're at. Uh, some of the things we do to stress test, certainly we stress test and we want to know what our break even is. So what are the scenarios that are going to create a situation where we break even, whether that's occupancy, um, decline, you know, um, vacancies increasing, rents decreasing, both happening. So what are all the situations where that happens? And then also what happens in if in five years the uh, exit cap rate is actually two, three times worse, right? So we, we take a look at all those scenarios and uh, try and figure out, okay, if all this stuff happens, are we still making money? Does the property still cash flow? Are we still going to be able to pay our debt? Um, and then we kind of take a look at it from there. All right. And you mentioned uh, earlier when you were chatting for the call here, that this first deal, I mean, it's come up really fast. You're looking to exit in just over 12 months of acquiring the, the asset, but it's really created some, some momentum for you in your next deal um, from attracting, whether it be investors or partners, you, you, you've really built a track record now that um, it made that second deal easier. Uh, can you talk about that transition to that next deal and uh, maybe even talk a little bit about that second deal? Yeah, sure. Uh, so basically three weeks after we close on this first deal, we got our next deal under contract. And a lot of people talk about that. It's the art of the first deal or the law of the first deal. Um, and that came through a broker relationship in Phoenix. And the way that happened was it was actually a relationship with our partner on the first deal and his relationship with the broker. So we had a couple of partners on that 42 unit that helped us with the net worth liquidity and signing on the loan. And um, one of those partners had done a couple of deals with a broker in Phoenix and these were smaller deals. And my partner uh, has a W2 job. So he doesn't have a ton of time to underwrite, take a look, go visit the markets like I did because I'm doing it full time now. So he uh, got an email from the broker said, Hey, we're taking this out in a couple weeks. Do you want to take a, a sneak peek at it? So he sent it my way. We underwrote it that day. We were out on, uh, touring the property the following day. 
and literally the first day it went to market, we got it under contract. So there was no bidding war. Um, you know, we, we thought we got it at a great price and, um, you know, a few months later we were able to close on this property. So again, it was about relationships, my relationship with my partner and, and then his relationship with the broker that was allowed us to get this property before there was really a bidding war. Oh, that's great. And, um, going back a little bit to your, your first deal, sometimes people talk about having to take a little bit of a beginner's discount on the first deal to make it a little bit more enticing for an investor to, to uh, go with the sponsor that might not have a ton of experience or a track record. Could you talk a little bit about how you structured your deal for investors, the preferred return and the profit split? Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that deal was a six pref 80, 20 split. We're now more uh, geared towards eight pref 70, 30 split. Um, but really, it was difficult raising funds on that deal. But I go back to the fact that we were building our investor database for a year and a half prior to, you know, closing on that deal. So it wasn't one of those things where we were just out of the gates, we had a deal, we hadn't been out there uh, talking to people about what we've been doing. I mean, we built it for a year and a half. And so that's why we were able to raise the funds on that first deal. Because this is all about relationships, you know, whether you do a 506B or a 506C where you can advertise, ultimately no one's going to invest with you unless you have a track record and relationships with these people. And so for that first 18 months, that's what we were doing. We were helping people, trying to add value where we could. We showed people we were serious um, and we were telling people what we were doing. Right. So those are some of the main strategies you look to uh, build that investor database, because that was actually one of the things I want to touch on next. Like what uh, fueled that growth or allowed you to build that database? What were some of the, the key key actions you took? I know you have a podcast. I know you have a meetup group or, you know, could you talk about those items and maybe some other items that really helped you, you know, build relationships and, and get out there in the marketplace saying, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're looking to accomplish and just building those uh, relationships with potential investors. Yep. So the number one thing would be consistency is what I would tell people. But, you know, we first started by getting out of our comfort zone and doing things that we typically didn't feel comfortable with, but knew would set us up for success in the future. And it was just executing the plan, taking action. So first we started a meetup, then we started a podcast. And all between that time, we're talking to people, we're going to conferences, we're talking to our friends and family about what we're doing. Um, actually, before the meetup, we started a monthly newsletter. Okay. And so as we added people to the database, we, we did that. We've got a drip campaign that's 20 months long that continues to touch our investors and, and communicate with our investors and add value. Um, and then after the podcast, we decided, decided to start another meetup in the Phoenix market. Um, and now we're going to launch a, um, a second segment of our podcast. And we also do monthly webinars as well. And it's, it's all about value and consistency. If you have a monthly newsletter and sometimes it goes out, sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes it goes out on the first, next time it's on the fifth, there's no consistency there. And so there's no reason for to keep the investors engaged. And so I am one that says everything goes out at, you know, on our newsletter goes out on the first of the month at 10 a.m. every month. Our meetup is the second Tuesday of every month at 6.30 p.m. at the same location. Um, our, our podcast gets launched at 5 a.m. on Mondays, every Monday. And so that consistency has really been key, I think, in our communication with our investors. Right. No, that's great. I was actually going to ask your number one tip on raising capital. And, and it sounds like that that might be the, the direction you would head is consistency is pretty much sums it up. Now, on that on that uh, deal, did you do a 506B or a 506C offering? We do 506B offerings. So both of those have been 506B offerings. Right. And uh, do you find that uh, and for the audience that is listening, the 506B, do you, do you mind kind of explaining the difference? 
Yeah, sure. There's a couple differences. Mainly it's advertising and solicitation are, are the two biggest things is with a 506B, you need to have a pre-existing relationship with the investors. Uh, it needs to be a substantive relationship. And with a 506C, you can advertise. So you can put a billboard up at the Super Bowl and uh, advertise all you want and take anyone in. The only difference is, is that with a 506C, all investors need to be accredited and they actually need to be verified that they're accredited. With a 506B, we can take up to 35 unaccredited investors and then the rest need to be self-verified accredited investors. And uh, accredited investor is, is basically <clears throat> your net worth is a million dollars or more, uh, less your primary residence, or you make $200,000 for the last several years and for the foreseeable future. And if you're married uh, filing jointly, it's 300,000. Oh, that's great. Uh, there's so many more questions I'd like to ask you. I know we're up against the clock here, uh, Kyle. So we're going to roll into our final four questions where you just give quick to point answers. So starting off here, what is your favorite real estate or business book? Um, you know, the, the most, the one that most comes to mind is the one I just read and I don't know if it fits under either, but it's shoe dog by Phil Knight. Yeah. And, uh, it's just, it's so well written and such a great book and such a great story. I just loved it. Yeah. Awesome. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? That it was going to be more difficult than it is. <laughs> um, I've loved this journey. It's been fantastic, but it definitely has been, um, more long-term thinking and relationship building. Yeah. Yeah. So what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? Weekdays, I wake up at 4 a.m. I have an accountability partner that I talk to in the morning just to get us up and going. And I do what's called the Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Not sure if you know that one, but yeah, it really sets my day up for success. And when you wake up at 4 a.m., you're just not feeling rushed, right? You're getting a lot done. And so that sets my day up pretty well. Yeah. What do you do for fun? Oh, man, all I do is work right now, you know, and, and my wife works a lot as well, too. So for fun, we, we set our goals and really try and achieve those goals and, and look forward to five years from now. But, you know, um, other than that, we try and take a quarterly trip uh, every year just to go or every quarter just to go get away and um, have fun. But other than that, you know, we enjoy cooking together and spending time together. And, and that's about it. So we're kind of boring. <laughs> right, right. All right. So that's all the questions I got for you. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, check out our podcast, Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate. Uh, I can get my cell phone, 562-833-5010. I am going through a little bit of a rebranding phase right now where I'm merging companies with my business partner. So uh, our website will redirect to a new website uh, once we get that figured out. But uh, currently our website's limitless-estates.com and you can pick up a passive investor's guide there where we educate um, you on the things you need to know before really getting into syndication and multifamily. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today, Kyle. Really appreciate you giving your time and, and sharing some, some value with our audience and giving some knowledge. Um, so really, thanks again. Um, I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.